Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues to lead us through the Old Testament. During this sermon, we hear about five different prophets and learn that the message of the gospel is the same as the message of the prophets. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Glory, Decline, and Fall. Let's turn our attention to the word of the living God. 2 Kings chapter 17, um, as we continue this overview through the storyline and theology of the Old Testament. We've only got about a month left, about four more messages finishing out this overview of the Old Testament. Today we're looking at the fall of the two kingdoms and going to be looking at the message of the prophets. Let's get started with the passage, 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 6. We'll read a portion, then I need to pray. So beginning in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried, away, uh, carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and they had feared other gods. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets And every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenants which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them and they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves and made an asher and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunders until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets." 
So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. If you'll bow with me, let's ask for God's grace as we study. Our Father, God, all of the ends of the earth, every human is going to glorify you in some way. God, you tell us that on the last day, even the wicked will serve your purposes by bowing to you and by their evil revealing your righteousness and your justice in their condemnation. Every Christian is in some way going to give you glory, even those who live with half-hearted obedience as they reveal your glory. But Father, we long to be a church family that glorifies you by loving you, walking closely, obeying you wholeheartedly, serving you faithfully. And so God, it's our cry, it's our great desire, oh God, that you come and work in us to lead us to that. God, every single day we're wrestling with fickle hearts inside of ourselves that have a tendency to drift from you, a tendency to wander away. And God, we just beg that you come to us. Father, strengthen us. Father, I pray for every soul, um, Lord, who's here this morning. I ask God that your sons and daughters who have trusted in Christ to be saved, God, I, I pray today's a day where we're grown, where we're strengthened. Convict the sins that we need convicted of, Father, but also, Lord, where we need encouragement, where we need, uh, Father, answers. Father, please bring those. But God, I, I pray for every soul in the room that has not yet repented of their sins. Maybe even still think of all of this as laughable and they mock. I, I just ask God that you bring about a humbling. I ask God that you bring an opening of the eyes to see the truthfulness of your word and God that you will draw them to repentance today. Please bless this time. I ask God for the young ones back in their Bible study. God, I pray the gospel will be made clear today. God, I pray that you save some of these little children of our church. Oh God, have mercy on them and God have mercy on us here. Protect this service. Bless us over the course of this next while as we intensely think on your word. Please give me grace to preach. All of us grace, oh God, to receive your word. It's for your glory. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at it and covered most of the history of the era of the kings. We saw the nation of Israel um, flourish and prosper under David and then his son Solomon. We saw this kingdom divided into two kingdoms because of rebellion against God, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. We also walked through some of their history and saw the drifting from God that both of these kingdoms um, participated in. And as they began to drift, as so often happens, once they get started rolling down a hill, it's hard to stop that trajectory. Once you start drifting, it's a difficult thing to make the U-turn and come back. And they picked up steam. We also mentioned last week that in that northern kingdom Israel, there was not a single king who was godly. Not a single one. In the southern kingdom, God gave the grace of the occasional king who, who would work for reform and, and who honored the Lord and would lead to some fruit. But, but for every godly king, there were four who undid all the good that was there. And so as you're walking through, you'll, you'll come to some kings like Hezekiah. 
Uh, Hezekiah, if you, were to, if you were to look at 2 Chronicles 29, we're not doing that today. We don't have enough time to get into all the details there, but you'll see Hezekiah, you'll see his devotion to the Lord, him laboring, laboring to try to show, try to, try, try to help people see the weight of eternity, the, the weight, the significance of, of serving God, like, like showing them what in the world matters is if, if in the end on the day of judgment, you're not right with God. Your life is a waste unless you're right with him. Hezekiah would labor to show these things. He brought about great reform in worship, great, great reform in society, uh, all kinds of good things you can see there. But here's the disappointing part. The very next king who would come to the throne his own son, by the way, Manasseh, in just a couple of years, undid, just undid all of the good that he worked for. And, and by the way, to the encouragement and applause of the people, undoing all of the work of reform. We also come to a, a, another king by the name of Josiah. We see a similar kind of thing. In Josiah's day, they had drifted so far from God, Josiah didn't even know that certain parts of the Bible existed. There, there was actually a time when priests found a copy of the law of Moses in the temple and they came to Josiah and read it to him. He'd never heard it before. And when he heard the law, he tore his clothes. He, he, he wept and, and cried out a prayer of repentance on behalf of all of the people. But, but then just as soon as the next king came, undid all of the good that he did. Friends, the trajectory of this world is toward moral disorder and not the other way around. But like, like it's easy for moral chaos to come about. It takes incredible effort for obedience, for reform to come about. And so we just see this, this trajectory that these two kingdoms were on of distancing themselves further and further, further from the Lord. But this whole era of the decline of spiritual condition of the kingdoms in this era, the role of the prophets becomes a massive role. You have all of this insanity, you have all of this moral chaos, and in the midst of the darkness, God would raise up these servants. They weren't, they weren't special in the sense like they were superhuman, okay? Like when you read the prophets, you, you really feel a lot of camaraderie with them a lot of times. Like you're kind of like Jonah, I, I could be friends with Jonah. I get that. I'm a lot like Jonah, okay? Like you read the prophets, they weren't perfect. They weren't superhuman. They're just regular people. A lot of times when God call out some of the prophets, they would argue and be like, um, God, you got a mistake. You don't understand. I'm just a regular guy. You need one of these special people. God would call out these regular people, but give them an extraordinary job. Give them the job. I'm going to show you things. Your job is to go tell the people. Your job is to go speak. Christian, there's a one-to-one ratio here. Just like the church has been called by God, we have been given the word of God in the scriptures. God has spoken to us. Our job is to tell the world. Our job is to call the message of the gospel. And friends, the message of the gospel is the message of the prophets. Like there hasn't been a change. The message of the gospel is the message of the prophets, a call for all of the world to come to and repent, to turn from rebellion and come and be made right with God. The gospel uh, has been added to, like we've had fulfillment come about, that it's specifically the name of Jesus, 
that must be known and he must be called upon. But the idea of repenting, of turning from rebellion and coming and submitting to God in the message of the gospel is the message of the prophets. They would call out to the people, leave your rebellion. Every once in a while, the people would respond in repentance, but most of the time they didn't. In fact, the prophets were hated. Um, they were viewed as freaks. And the office of a prophet had a very high fatality rate. Most of the time, the people killed the prophets. Um, Jesus actually spoke of this numerous times um, as he was preaching and teaching. There's, there's a scene where um, Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time that, that event, that Passover celebration where he would be put to death. And as he's traveling with this whole group of his followers, he stops, he pauses, he looks out over Jerusalem and both Matthew and Luke records this moment where he weeps over the city. Just like Jeremiah the prophet had looked out over the city of Jerusalem and wept over the city. And Jesus said, Jesus said this, you can hear the emotion of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Remember that last sentence. Your house is being left to you desolate. What we're going to spend time with on today is looking at the message of the prophets. So we've covered the era of the kings. Today we're looking at the fall of the two kingdoms and we can do that by looking at the role of the prophets, the message of the prophets, because this is what they were talking about. They were calling the people to leave rebellion against God or this is coming. So before these kingdoms fell, God in grace sent hundreds of prophets. There's, there's times where in the in uh, Second Chronicles we read about hundreds of prophets who their job was to go out. We know about the big ones. They would go to the temple and they would, they would like preach loudly. Some of them just had the job of just going and having conversation, okay? Christian, just like we are called to make it known publicly, but also just house-to-house -house conversation and they would call out. Ultimately, the people would not listen and both kingdoms would fall. So let's walk through the message of the prophets as we look at the fall of the two kingdoms. We're gonna spend our time like this. So the, the points outline, if you wanna do it, is like this. Gonna be six points. We're gonna look at five of the prophets. I just picked out five. Um, five prophets, that'll be five points. And then at the very end, we're gonna come back, we're gonna just kind of summarize what we see here and kind of bring this section of history to a close as we go. So going to do a lot of reading today in the hardest books of the Bible to find. Okay. Um, just being honest, if you're new to studying the Bible and it can be a little intimidating, the person next to you turn into passages and things, don't sweat it. We are turning to literally the hardest books in the Bible to find. It's okay. Um, I, if you don't get there, it's fine. I'll read them out loud. So number one, if you will flip to the book of Amos, the book of Amos. I know you're going, what, where's that? Amos Joel, Amos, Obadiah, somewhere in there. Amos, uh, we're going to start in chapter 5 if you want a place to turn to. But Amos was a prophet that God called to go to the northern kingdom. We're going to talk about two northern kingdom prophets and then three southern kingdom prophets. First, northern kingdom. Um, and what the book of Amos is, is just God 
appeared to Amos in visions, spoke to him, and then his job was write it down. Write it down and record what I give you. The northern kingdom um, was in a time of just extreme corruption. And we saw the scripture talk about all kinds of different sins. Throughout the prophets, you'll see God list off dozens of different kinds of evils. Specifically, the one that Amos most specifically addresses is the sin of injustice. You know, all of our sin comes from the same root. All right, we, we all have the same root of where sin comes from. The great evil of sin is not just the actions that we do, it's the root of the basic disease of sin. The basic root of sin is resisting the rule of God. The basic root is the pride of elevating ourselves. I rule myself and I refuse to submit to God. That's the root. All of us have our own individual ways that that root manifests itself. So, so, so two people may have the exact same strain of the flu virus, but they might have different symptoms uh, that, that manifest themselves to different degrees, a higher fever over here, this sort of thing. We all got our own individual sins. The thing that God is angriest about with this is not the specific actions, it's the root. And for instance, so does that help us kind of understand the root of, of what repentance is? The basic idea of repentance is turning the heart to God to say, I am ceasing to war against you. I'm bringing my heart into submission and then that will mean my actions will follow. We've all got our own individual actions, but the root is what is addressed. Over and over again, you see the genius of the Bible in addressing the root and not just what comes out. But throughout the prophets, God will address both the, the symptoms, the individual sins, but then also the root itself. And the root of in, and, and the sin of injustice was one of the major ones that Amos addresses. You know, when the morals of a society decay, as people leave submission to God, love for neighbor love for your fellow man also grows cold with it. This is one of the things we try to reason with atheists and secularists about, um, you know, the kind who make it their life ambition to, you know, they're like atheist evangelists. They just want to work so that everybody removes any mention of God and morals in society. One of the things we're constantly reasoning is, look, you don't want this place you're trying to make. You don't want the kind of world you're trying to create. As a culture's morals decay, so does some of the things we just take for granted. Things like care for one another. When a people feel no accountability to God, they will live like they have no accountability to God. It's one of the things that we bring up, some of the idiocy of liberal Christianity that has for decades now been teaching this idea, you know, I'm okay. You're, we're all okay. You know, religion is just God wants you to know you're okay. Okay, that insanity, what does that produce? It produces this idea of, 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 of because everything's fine, there's nothing that I owe God. There's no obligation, no sense of fear. And even giving people a religious justification for having no sense of accountability. And when people feel no accountability to God, they will live accordingly. This is what we see 
in the era of the Northern Kingdom and as people feel less and less care for neighbor, one of the things that goes with it is justice. Throughout the prophets, God has a lot to say about justice. But let's look at Amos say some of the, or God speaking through Amos to say some of these things. Amos chapter five, like I said, we're gonna do a lot of reading today. So find verse one. Let's read through the first 15 verses to start. Hear this word, which I take up for you as a dirge, O house of Israel. A dirge was a, a, a song sang at like a funeral, a sad song. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land. There's none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. But do not resort to Bethel. These are some cities they were tempted to flee to for refuge and do not come to Gilgal nor cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel for those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Jump down to verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate, meaning those who stand for truth, the people despise him and they abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent for it is an evil time. Do you see one of the evils is those who know better stay silent? Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gates. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, uh, notice just a few of the, kind of the significant points there. You see God saying, you're living in rebellion. You're not okay. You're not okay. I am not happy with what's going on here. You need to leave your rebellion and come and be made right. You see God say, if you do not repent, there is a storm of judgment that is coming. Notice the tone. Notice the, notice the perspective of God in these things. You, you ever hear people sometimes say, why can't we Christians just be positive all the time? Let's just talk about what we're for instead of what we're against. I just ask you, is that what God does? Is that his perspective? Is that what you would say while someone was murdering your children? Hey, I just want to be positive. No, you address the evil. Okay, That's, that idea is fine. Let's just always talk about happy things and positive things if you don't think that sin is actually a big deal. But what if it actually does invoke the judgment and wrath of God? What if he actually is disgusted with it? Then it's a big deal and it must be addressed. This is what the prophets are constantly doing. God is convincing a people who didn't believe their sin was a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, continue on. Um, in chapter 5 there, jump to verse 21. There's another kind of whole theme through the prophets I want you to see here. Look what God says. I hate, I reject your festivals. 
nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the, at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Now, did you catch that right there? There's something that God says there's kind of confusing sometimes. This is the way that a lot of times people think about God and the way to get right with him. Sometimes folks will say things like, I know, I need to get in church. Or I need, I need to get back in church. That's, that's my problem. I need to get back in church. Do you see God saying here, I hate your religious activities. Stop it. Your religious songs to me, they're noise in my ears. I hate it. Stop it. All right, well, if God doesn't want that, then what does he want? Well, listen, friends, God does want worship. God does want songs. During this time of the old covenant, when sacrifices were the way that they worshiped, God wanted sacrifices in these religious activities. But he doesn't want it without repentant hearts. That's the issue. Friends, religion without hypocrisy, excuse me, religion without repentance is just hypocrisy. Religion without a heart that is in submission to God He's disgusted with it. All throughout the prophets, if you, if you read through, you, you'll get so much out of it. I know it's not a place that people a lot of times go for their devotional reading. I am telling you, there's so much good stuff there. If you will read, you will just see this theme carried all the way through. I'm sick of your religion without submission. God says, I don't want it. Friends, the scripture tells us, all right, you, you, may, you may come to church every single week, you might be really faithful in your attendance and you might sing louder than anybody else, might raise your hands, all these different kinds of things. That is not the measure of your relationship with God. In fact, what we're told is we can anger God by going through those motions, but hypocritically having a heart that is not in submission to him. And so God brings this up. God calls them, leave your rebellion. Let justice roll down like waters. Um, what, one more spot I want to take you to in Amos, jump to chapter nine. A couple more points I want to, I want to show you just kind of about themes within the prophets there. Uh, jump to chapter nine, look at verse eight. He says, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So I'm bringing judgment, but I'm not obliterating. I have, I have a work for your future. And then notice the very next thing that God says. This is, this is one of the things that you're gonna be so helped by when you read the prophets. You come to understand the anger of God over sin, probably more than any other place in the whole Bible, in the prophets. The disgust that God has over disobedience and rebellion, but the love of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God to his promises are so rich in this section as well. So the very next verse, after he finishes that section, look at verse 11, look what he, look what he says there. In that day, speaking of a day in the future, I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Read tabernacle, temple there. 
and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Okay, here's what that means. The fruit that your crops and your trees produce will be so much, you'll be picking fruit for so long, it comes around to planting time again. So just flourishing and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on the land and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. This message of hope and restoration for the future also runs through the prophets. Friends, As the scripture so often shows us, behold the kindness and severity of God. You come to know the intensity of God's hatred for sin. And it's only against that backdrop do we understand the beauty of the grace of God, the love of God. So you're going to fall, but I am not done with you. I am going to restore you. Don't don't you love the beautiful poetry of the Bible, by the way? The mountains will drip with sweet wine. Friends, Jesus' very first miracle was to turn the water into wine at a wedding feast in this place. Do Do you see some of the imagery there? Okay, they would be given over into exile. They would be conquered. They would be destroyed. God would bring them back. They would restore. And here Jesus, the son of God would come and would turn water into wine there representing things. But you also see that there's not just an earthly kind of restoration talked about, but a heavenly one. Uh, No, I don't believe there will be literal sweet wine flowing down out of the mountains of heaven. Maybe, okay. But I think it's kind of a poetic way of saying it there. A time of abundance of God's grace that is there. And you see the beautiful, way that God speaks of those things. All right, well, number two, let's come to the prophet Hosea to see the message that is there. Hosea is two books in front of uh, Amos, if you found that one. And you can go to Hosea chapter one. Hosea and Amos were ministering at the same time. It's very likely they knew each other because they were ministering in overlapping uh, times there. Hosea is one of my favorite Um, of the prophets, we talk about God giving bold illustrations. Well, he's got another one here for Hosea. See, not only did God oftentimes give the prophets a message to preach, he also sometimes had them um, act out a drama. Maybe it was just for one moment. We saw Ezekiel as we were reading through um, that book together. We saw um, times where uh, Ezekiel was to um, make out of like sticks and things, like a little um, a figurine of the city of Jerusalem and lay siege to it. Sometimes God had prophets live out. In illustration, God has a big one with Hosea. God came to Hosea and told him, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Can you imagine Um, I want you to go to this house of harlotry. I want you to go pick out one of the ladies there. One of these women who sells her body for sex has slept with hundreds of men and I want you to propose to her and I want you to marry her. Hosea does. He marries a woman named Gomer. Um, He tells her, no no more of this. I want you to be 
faithful to me. She conceives and gives birth to a son. They name him Jezreel and God had some things he taught through that. You can read Hosea one on your own sometime. Then they together have a daughter. And God tells Hosea, name her Lo Ruhamah, which in Hebrew means no compassion. And God said, it's because the days of my patience and compassion with Israel are done. Judgment is coming. Then they have another son. And God tells Hosea, I want you to name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. Hosea chapter one, look at verse nine. The Lord said, name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, friends, that's, that's a pretty intense thing for God to say. And do you remember, as we've been walking through this overview series, and we have talked so much about this old covenant, the covenant of the Old Testament, do you remember what the essence of that covenant was? I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be my special possession out of all the earth. Here is God saying, you're not my people. I'm not your God. As adultery breaks the marriage covenant, so spiritual adultery breaks the covenant with God. But then once again, right on the heels of this, look at the very next verse, verse 10, Hosea 1:10. yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. Guess who that will be? And they will go up from the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Right on the heels of that right there comes this message of God's grace. The book of Hosea actually gets better. Um, Hosea's wife, what do you think she does? What is her nature? She cheats on Hosea. She doesn't just go and sleep with a man. She actually leaves him and goes and sells herself back into the bondage of prostitution. God says all of this is a picture of, of my covenant relationship with Israel. This is what you have done to me. The book could have ended right there and that would have been a pretty bold illustration. God's not done. God comes to Hosea and he gives him probably the hardest command thus far. Hosea, you know that wife that left you? You know that wife that broke the covenant and she went and sold herself back? Here's what I want you to do, Hosea. I want you to go win her back. Are you serious, God? I want you to take money. I want you to go redeem her out of the bondage she sold herself into. And I want you to take her back and you love her once again as your wife. And God says, this is what I am doing for my people. My people, I was a husband to them. I made a covenant with them. They left me to serve pleasure, to serve themselves, to serve other gods. They have broken the covenant, but I am going to bring them back. Friends, the rest of the Bible goes on to describe that the book of Hosea is your story. But in the story, we're not Hosea. We are the one that has left God. And the message of the gospel is God coming to us. God pursuing us. God wooing us to himself. And friends, it's in these prophets, it's against this backdrop that we see the way that God thinks of our sin. The way that God thinks of rebellion and the 
the glory of the gospel, you're just never going to get until you see how disgusted with our sin God really is. Friends, hear me, hear me very carefully. You have never been so disgusted with anything as God is disgusted with rebellion. As repulsed as you are with the sickest kinds of evil your mind can think of. The sick and twisted harming of children. As disgusted as you have ever been over the thought of any sin, God is more disgusted over your sin. Friends, I'm not saying, I want to clarify. I'm not saying what sometimes Christians say. I believe it's an erroneous statement that sometimes Christians say all sin's the same. You know, it doesn't matter what you do, it's all the same. I, I, I see no biblical foundation for that whatsoever. I think the Bible shows God has appropriate degrees of anger based on the heinousness of the sin. Like God is more angry over murder than he is a hurtful word. But what I am saying is this. Are you disgusted over murder? All right, good, you should be. But you're not as disgusted as God is. And are you disgusted over your sin? Good, you should be. But you're not as disgusted as God is. God in righteousness and holiness looks on our sin, the kinds of sins that we trivialize and we think of as little, and God is repulsed over them. And friends, in learning that, does not the gospel be shown to be so much more beautiful than we ever thought it? Friends, you're never going to fall on your face and weep in gratitude. You're never going to rejoice over your salvation to an appropriate level until we see just how awful and disgusting God sees our sin. And in the light of this, while we were yet sinners, God sent his son. Friends, that's the gospel. The message of the gospel is in the prophets. Well, here's number three. Let's just focus a little bit now to the prophets who addressed Judah. Um, there are actually many more of those. The book of Isaiah, if you want to flip there for a moment, the book of Isaiah is awesome. You get so much out of reading it there. And if you read the first chapter, you would get the main idea. So, so flip to chapter one, if you will. Uh, let's read a, a, little, a couple portions in the first chapter there. Beginning in verse one, Isaiah 1, 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four kings there of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. You see the, the many uh, ways that God speaks of what it is to live, to live in resistance to Him. See, the constant dilemma of whenever the world hears the message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures, is always this aversion of, hey, hey, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. But look at the way that God speaks of living in defiance. He says it's revolting against him. It is despising him. If you are not in submission to Jesus Christ, 
you are despising God. You are revolting against his rule. He says they have abandoned me. Same chapter, jump down to verse 10 there. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. In the previous verses, he just said, you're like Sodom and you're like Gomorrah. Give ear to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Similar message running through these things. What I want is repentance, not your mere religious activities. Well, there's more big stuff that the book of Isaiah goes on to teach. Some of it pertaining to what we're looking at. If you'll jump to chapter 10 for a moment. Isaiah has some of the deepest theology in all the Bible, seriously, and, and specifically concerning the sovereignty of God. Like you think Romans 9 is bold? Isaiah's got just as much. Some of the deepest stuff. Look at Isaiah chapter 10 and find verse 5 for a second. Woe to you, Assyria, the rod of my anger. That's a lot of theology right there. And the staff in whose hands is my indignation, I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and cut off many nations. First, think about what God just said there. This is one of those places that people like to try to argue with the Bible. Just shut it and bow. It's always easier just bow to God, okay? Think about what God says here. Woe to Assyria, that's the nation that would come and destroy the northern kingdom. What does he call them? They are the rod of my anger, I am sending them against Israel. They're serving my purposes. But they don't know that. That's not what they're planning. They're not thinking in their hearts, I want to serve the Lord. They have evil motives in their heart. Assyria went against Israel because they wanted to kill them and take more power and treasure. And God says, this is my purposes. I'm orchestrating this. The sovereignty of God. It is everywhere all through the scriptures, and we are meant to just be blown away by it. Assyria would come against the northern kingdom. God goes on to say that the nation of Babylon would come against Judah and destroy them, carry them away from their land, and they would be in exile. Isaiah has a whole lot more to say. You can look at places like chapter 7 and chapter 9, prophecies about Jesus written 700 years before the coming of Christ. And if you jump to the very last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, very briefly, 
Isaiah 66, you've got all of this language of judgment and wrath. And yet, Isaiah 66, verse 12, look what it says. For thus says the Lord, I see your page is flipping, so I'll let you get there. Isaiah 66, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream and you will be nursed. You will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. That is tender then you will see this and your heart will be glad and your bones will flourish like the new grass and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant towards his enemies. That is tender. Friends, this is the same book where God said, I'm going to trample my enemies and their blood will squirt onto my garments because of their rebellion. And yet in the backdrop of that, God says, like a, like a mother who loves her baby plays with her little child, I am going to comfort you. Behold the kindness and severity of God. He is merciful. He is tender. He is gracious. But he is also just and terrifying when there is rebellion against him. God is giving promises of restoration for their future. And if you, if you keep reading in, in uh, the last chapter there, it's not just earthly restoration. At the very end there, verse 22, God says things, I will, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. There is talk of the coming kingdom. Well, number four, very quickly, after the book of Jeremiah, excuse me, after the book of Isaiah, you come to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called as a prophet before during and after the time when Babylon did destroy the southern kingdom. He would declare that God was going to destroy the temple and the people would hate him for it. They would mock him. They would yell out, this is God's temple. He is never going to break his temple. This cannot be shaken. And the people just refused to heed the warning. They refused to admit that they had done evil. But we see the message of hope again. Sometime this afternoon, I'll just give you some passages you can look at. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. Many of you maybe even memorized Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and keep you. Jeremiah 31. Um, if you also, in, in, in 31, if you look at 10 to 14 and 17, but if you also jump down to 31 to 34, you see God giving promise about a new covenant. I will bring a new covenant that is different than the old covenant. A covenant where I forgive sins, a covenant that is not based on obedience, it is based on the grace of God. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus has brought in his blood. This is why we call this the new covenant, a covenant that is not based on your performance. Aren't you glad, Christian? We ruin it every time. A covenant that is based on what someone has done on your behalf. A covenant that is based on what Christ has done in his obedience to the law of God and in his work of redemption on the cross. And then uh, last, last prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet, called as a prophet, after he had been carried away from Jerusalem. Ezekiel had been a priest in the temple. 
And when Nebuchadnezzar's army came against Jerusalem, it didn't all go down like in one day. There were stages. And the first stage was a conquering and exiles were carried away out of their land and back to the land of Babylon. Ezekiel was among those. He finds himself living in a tent by a river in a foreign land that he's never known before. And one day, God appears to him in a vision and calls him as a prophet. Ezekiel had a, a, lot of, a lot of messages he was to tell the people, calling them to repentance. Even while they were in exile, God was still calling them to be right with him. But one of the messages that Ezekiel called out was, God is going to destroy the temple. See, when they left, it was all fine. And God tells them, I'm going to ruin this. I'm going to level this. Once again, the people seethed in their hatred. They refused to acknowledge this. This is the temple of the Lord. He is never going to break his temple. And there's a very solemn chapter. When God gives Ezekiel a vision of his glory, leaving the Holy of Holies, exiting the holy place, passing out the doors of the temple ahead of his judgment. And the statement is made there, your house is being left to you desolate. The presence of God left the temple. That was the whole point, by the way. The whole point was God saying, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. How can this holy God dwell amongst his people without destroying them? The answer was the temple. God's presence was among them, but God gives Ezekiel the vision of his presence leaving the temple before the destruction came. 600 years after that moment, Jesus would stand on a mountain looking over Jerusalem, looking at the rebuilt temple, looking at the city that had killed dozens and dozens of the prophets. In fact, the very place where he would soon be killed and he weeps over the place and says, your house is being left to you desolate. In 722 BC, the Northern Kingdom of Israel was attacked by the kingdom of Assyria and the people carried off into exile and scattered to the continents. God allowed Judah to remain another 136 years. And in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's army came and laid siege to Jerusalem. You can read about the horrific circumstances of the siege in places like 2 Chronicles. All the things that God said that he would do. Remember back in Deuteronomy 28? Some of those very uncomfortable things we read and maybe you were asking, Pastor, why'd you pick this for the scripture reading today? It came about. Fathers eating their children. Mothers consuming their afterbirth. Horrid atrocities coming about. The city was leveled. The temple was destroyed and burned and the people judged. God unleashed a partial wrath. Jeremiah wrote another book in the prophets, the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is Jeremiah weeping his eyes out, looking over the city of Jerusalem with corpses lying in the streets, smoldering buildings, and the Holy Spirit inspires him to write of the desolation. And he laments what has happened in all of this. And then the scripture says, the land 
had rest. All of the wickedness which had been being done for hundreds of years, the Lord wiped it off the land and the land had rest. And let me just, let me just kind of say this on the heels of those hard things that we've said. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we bring this message to the world, the call to repentance, the talk about God's judgment and God's wrath, and it's met with opposition. It's met with resistance, and people are always like, man, you guys are downers. Why are we talking about this? I don't like this. But friends, just how absurd it is to resist truth because you don't like it? How absurd it is to send your x-rays back because it's not what you preferred? Friends, we, we Christians do not believe the scriptures because um, it's the message we like the best out of all the options of the world. We believe the gospel because we're convinced it's true, regardless of convenience. I love the beauty of the gospel. I think it surpasses every other message and every other possibility out there, but the convenience is not what it is about. The question to ask is, is it true? If you flip back to this one more place today, 2 Chronicles, we're just about done. Thank you for your patience. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36. Let's see one last kind of summarization of all of this. Second Chronicles 36. And if you find verse 15, speaking about when God came against the southern kingdom here. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. In the book of Genesis, we saw God create the heavens and the earth as his kingdom. We saw the citizens of the kingdom of this world rebel against his rule. We saw the promise of a coming kingdom. Throughout the book of Exodus, we saw God working towards a kingdom. In the book of Joshua, we saw a partial kingdom on the earth. God's people in God's place, sort of under God's rule and sort of experiencing God's blessing. In the era of the monarchy, we see a partial earthly kingdom that had moments where it looked like it could flourish, but because it's based on the performance and obedience of a sinful people, they could not maintain it. And the kingdom collapsed. These two kingdoms fell. 
And friends, it is so significant when Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament and begins preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be saved and enter. And Jesus goes on to preach that you can enter this kingdom of God even right now. And then in Hebrews, we go on to be told that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Do you see the significance of that in light of all that we've seen? A kingdom that is based on the performance and obedience of the people will fall. But we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that is based on the work of Christ. A kingdom that you can enter right now. You don't get to see the glory of it now. We get little sips, little sips of the sweet wine that will one day be known in fullness in the kingdom of heaven to come. This is our hope, Christian. You who have trusted in Christ and you look to Christ as your king, this one ruler that we have chosen, this is your kingdom. And if you're here and you've not yet come to Christ like this, you've not yet repented of your rebellion because maybe you're still kind of saying to yourself, I'm fine. It's always the world's response. We're fine. Just leave us alone, Christians. If you're still resisting this and you've not called on the name of Jesus Christ specifically to be saved, I'm not sure to be mean when I tell you this, but I am being honest to the scriptures here when I say you're not in this kingdom and you're not right with this king. In all the years of the prophets, what was the response of the people? The same response we see today. Resistance. We're fine. Shut up, Jeremiah. And the day came when the wrath came upon them. You may find that laughable. But the only question to ask is, is this real? Is God really the king? Is he really this disgusted over sin? Everything he said in the scripture, does he really mean it? Acts 4.12 says, there is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God calls to you through the message of the prophets, the message of the gospel to say, repent. Turn from your rebellion and come submit to Jesus Christ, calling on his name, specifically knowing you must be saved. The invitation I give to you is, if you want somebody to talk to about those things, somebody to ask some questions of, find me before you leave. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father, thank you for your grace. God, I ask you go to work on any who are resisting you. God, please don't let them go the way of those who resisted in the days of the prophets. Please, God, open eyes and humble hearts. Please, God, save. Make us a church family that is active in being obedient to the calling you've given us, O oh God, to make the message of repentance and trusting in Christ known, O oh God. Use us as your servants. We ask your blessing today and we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Glory, Decline, and Fall. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.